Can you remember a time when you thought someone you disagreed with might actually be right? In the new podcast, You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen pose that question to guests like Paul Ryan, Al Gore, and Judy Woodruff. Come for the stories, stay for the substance and expert insights into some of the most challenging issues facing the country, including affordable housing, crime, and education. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts. Planning an international trip and want to learn the language of your destination? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today. Hello there. This is Greg Young. And I'm Tom Myers. And we thought that we would just pop in here before today's show starts with a quick check-in. Yeah, because today marks the seventh week, Greg, that we have been on this more frequent schedule. That is so crazy. Although I can't really tell if if that's like a long time or no time. I have like no perspective of time right now. Yeah, time has become kind of a strange thing these past two months. I'm happy that we've all been able to experience this time warp together. But Tom, you've been gone the past few episodes. It's true. Yes, I have disappeared for the last two shows, and I'm actually gone for the one you're about to, to listen to as well. Yeah, I'm sure people are wondering what you're up to. So do you have a good excuse for the teacher? I, um, Teacher, I have an eight and a half pound excuse, to be precise, and she is taking a nap as we speak. I am so happy to announce uh, that my husband and I received a call about two weeks ago that we'd been selected to adopt a little girl who had just been born. And so we are we are so thrilled. We are so tired, but we are so thrilled and delighted. And Greg, thank you for stepping up and in the midst of all of this, keeping the show on track. Well, I suppose that's a very good excuse, having a newborn <laughs> in quarantine. So, well, congratulations. And we'll actually, we'll be discussing this a bit more mm-hmm. in the takeout episode that we'll be recording for our patrons that will be released this weekend. Yes. And I, I'll tell you all about um, listening to you discuss moving day, Greg, while I've been changing <laughs> diapers. I also want to know how things are going over in your neck of the woods in Brooklyn. You, we have to fill each other in. That's true. Well, and you'll be back on the show, of course. Yes, hopefully next week. Um, I'm pulling together our special listener show at home in New York that we talked about for, for a few episodes. We got so many wonderful submissions, so we really can't wait to share them with you. And so without further ado, on with the show. The Bowery Boys episode 325, The Staten Island Quarantine War. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. Support for the Bowery Boys is provided by our listeners. Join us for as little as a dollar a month by visiting patreon.com slash boys. Hi there, welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young, and we're headed today to the borough of Staten Island in the first half of the 19th century. Now, this is a different kind of New York City history show than you might be used to here. Across the bay, you had 
two cities in the midst of major, colossal development, the city of New York and the city of Brooklyn. While here on Staten Island, life was much simpler in the 1850s, only about 15,000 residents or so, most employed in the maritime trades or else as oystermen or farmers whose livelihood often depended on ferry service, which took them to the markets of those much larger cities across the water. And yet along its northeastern shore here, so just south of the spot of today's St. George Ferry Terminal, where thousands board and disembark the Staten Island Ferry every day, it was here for almost six decades in the 19th century, once sat America's largest quarantine station, 30 acres of hospitals, medical facilities, homes, and shanties, surrounded by a six-foot-tall brick wall. Since its construction in the year 1799, Staten Islanders had fought for its removal, considered a menacing danger to the health of the residents and a blight upon any possible development. Yet the need for such an extensive facility within such an active harbor meant that the state of New York mostly turned a blind eye to their needs. So the residents took matters into their own hands. On September 1st, 1858, the people of New York City took to the street in celebration. A telegraph line had been successfully laid between Europe and North America, allowing transatlantic messages to be sent for the first time in history. On that day, September 1st, the world would become just a little smaller and the streets of New York were filled with such wild celebration, fireworks and cannon fire filling the sky. But at that exact moment, that exact same time, here in Staten Island, the black skies would glow from the light of a far more ominous blaze. From the New York Times the following day. Shortly after nine o'clock, a fire was seen on Staten Island in the direction of the quarantine establishment. A bright column of flame first shot upwards, then dying down again. It burst out once more near 10 o'clock, appearing almost instantly to envelop three or four large buildings. The whole east side of the island was illuminated, and the flames cast their glare far and wide over the quiet bay. From the direction of the fire and the length of time it continued to burn, there can be little doubt that the old quarantine establishment, which has been so terrible a nuisance to the people of that immediate vicinity for years, is this morning a mass of smoldering ruins. What sacrifice of life, if any, there may have been on the part of the helpless patients in the institution or of what other tragic ends connected with the fire there may have been, it is impossible to state. The history of Staten Island is as old as that of the cities across the water. Its name comes from the Dutch Staten Island, named for the Dutch parliamentary body, the Staten General. The island is coterminous with Richmond County, a designation given to it by the British during the years of colonization, named for the first Duke of Richmond, an illegitimate son of King Charles II. 
The island was a stronghold for the Tories during the Revolutionary War, but with the British gone by 1783, life could resume here again quietly, with a population of roughly 4,000 people at that time. For the growing city of New York, at the tip of Manhattan, just north, Staten Island's northeastern section was of most interest strategically, forming on one side, with Long Island on the other, forming the winnowing area of the bay called the Narrows. This was the gateway from the Atlantic Ocean into the Upper Bay and the Hudson River. This defines Staten Island's use, if you will, for the state of New York, and in particular, the use of this northeastern end, incorporated into a town called Castleton. The quiet, rustic nature of life here at Castleton, dirt roads for farmers and wooden piers for oyster farmers, well, this meant that they, unfortunately, had very little political clout. The growing needs of the thriving city of New York gained precedence, especially during the 1790s, which was a very grave time for dangerous epidemics. The late 1790s were among the most tragic years in New York City history. Those who had survived the Revolutionary War now succumbed less than 20 years later to a brand new threat, yellow fever. It had first arrived in New York with great severity in the year 1795, killing 732 people and changing the city permanently with the wealthier residents fleeing densely populated streets and making their homes north of the city in places like Greenwich Village. In that year, 1795, the city built a burial ground and potter's field specifically for the victims of yellow fever. Today, that burial ground is Washington Square Park. The year 1798 was even worse. 2,000 people died that year of the illness, mostly the poor who worked and lived along the waterfront. And nobody knew what caused this illness, thinking it to be the miasma or gas clouds from garbage, human waste, or rotting food. The city made drastic efforts to clean the streets and eventually drain bodies of water like old collect pond. This only modestly halted the spread. Decades later, it would be discovered, of course, that mosquitoes spread the illness. Desperate city health officials began isolating the sick in new quarantine facilities. Now, one such site was an East River farm called Bellevue. The hospital, which would form around this quarantine, would later become known as Bellevue Hospital. If some thought garbage and waste caused yellow fever... Still others recognized it as a contagion, and one that was imported to New York on ships. Principally, it was assumed from the West Indies, today the island countries of the Caribbean. And so a quarantine station was desperately needed in the harbor as well, a place to isolate those infected before they could continue into New York. Now, a small island named Bedloe's Island served as such a quarantine during the colonial period, but it would be deemed inadequate for the needs of the 19th century. Today, the Statue of Liberty makes its home on Bedloe's Island, renamed Liberty Island, 
Not the first time in this show that liberty will be mentioned in association with quarantine. To combat future epidemics, the state of New York passed a quarantine law in 1799, and part of that law was to establish a new quarantine station on the northeastern shore of Staten Island in the area of Castleton. The state representative for the region, a man named Paul Michaud, declared that no resident of Staten Island would sell their land for such a ghastly purpose. And so the state took the land by eminent domain for the good welfare of the state, 30 acres, and there constructed the New York Marine Hospital, or more commonly referred to as simply the quarantine ground. And from that date, so began the quarantine war, a nearly six-decade-long conflict between the needs of the city, state, and country and the needs of the residents of Staten Island. Now, at first, it might have seemed manageable. Ships that planned on entering New York Harbor were first inspected for passengers suspected of being ill. Now, in the years of yellow fever, an infected ship would be marked with a flag, the Yellow Jack then docked along the eastern shore of Staten Island for sometimes up to six months. Its passengers would be removed, sick or otherwise, then unloaded at the pier and taken up to the quarantine ground, often assisted by stevedores working the docks. Those passengers showing clear signs of the disease had most of their clothing either vigorously cleaned or burned upon entry. The quarantine ground was divided by class. Wealthy passengers were taken to the nicest structure here on the complex, St. Nicholas Hospital, a well-appointed infirmary, 300 feet long with piazzas on each floor and a garden that afforded fine views of the harbor. The rest of the patients were not afforded such luxuries, placed in smaller hospitals or pest houses on the complex, or housed within wooden shanties for weeks at a time if they were not sick and were only being monitored. Doctors lived within the six-feet brick walls of the complex, as did boatmen and other workers, housekeepers, cooks, and others deemed essential to the maintenance of the quarantine ground. Others employed here, however, lived in the small village which developed alongside it. In addition, any infected person found in New York and in any other places in the region were also sent here to the grounds. Far from being a medical fortress, the Staten Island quarantine ground was often lively, eventually overcrowded with up to 1,500 patients at once, some impatient with quarantine, often escaped. The quarantine naturally stunted the development of northeastern Staten Island for a time, but many were still willing to take a few risks for so fine a landscape. Taking particular interest in this area was Daniel D. Tompkins, the governor of New York from the years 1807 to 1817. Finding great beauty in the area and possibly eyeing a good investment, Tompkins bought 47 acres of land astride the quarantine station. 
Even while governing the state and wooing the attentions of prominent federal politicians, Tompkins became a godfather of sorts to Staten Island, developing a major toll road, which later became today's Victory Boulevard. He also developed a ferry service between Staten Island and New York. At the heart of this fleet, the very first steam ferry, named the Nautilus. Tompkins' company would become the basis for the Staten Island ferry that we know today. His village would become known as Tompkinsville, right around the time that Tompkins became the vice president of the United States under President James Monroe. The development of Tompkinsville moved ahead, as did other nearby villages like Stapleton. The residents of these places perhaps not entirely clear on the dangers of life next to a quarantine ground. From a New York Academy of Medicine report, quote, In the year 1800, one year after the establishment of the station, yellow fever broke out among the sparse population living outside the quarantine area. And of the 25 cases, no less than 24 terminated fatally. That sort of thing went on almost every year thereafter. And we're not merely talking yellow fever by this point. A host of diseases soon vexed the communities of New York Harbor. Among the worst were smallpox, cholera, and typhus, brought with greater numbers with each passing decade by an ever-growing number of sea vessels, from the crews of ships heading north for the Hudson River and the Erie Canal, then from the passenger holds of arriving vessels filled with newly arriving immigrants by the thousands. This ever-increasing pressure pushed the quarantine ground and its staff to its limits. To quote from an article by Dr. Katherine Stevenson from the Harvard Center of Virology and Vaccine Research, quote, In one typical year, the quarantine required 108,000 pounds of bread, 1,334 pounds of coffee, and 235 gallons of brandy. Another year, the quarantine purchased 17 barrels of lime, 1,300 leeches, and 556 coffins. On the front lines of this crisis were doctors and nurses, the hospital waitstaff, the delivery men, the dock workers, and stevedores making first contact with infected patients on the pier. A pier, incidentally, just a very short walk from that of the Nautilus, Staten Island's regular steam ferry. By the 1830s, thanks in part to additional steam ferries, more people were coming to Staten Island as a place of recreation and escape. The northern end of Staten Island was soon populated with hotels like the Continental in Port Richmond. It was at this place in 1836 that another vice president, Aaron Burr, took residence in his final years. He actually died here on September 14, 1836. Now, slightly east of that hotel was Sailor's Snug Harbor, a convalescent home for, quote, the maintenance and support of aged, decrepit, and worn-out sailors, a retirement home which opened in 1833. Snug Harbor sat only two miles from the quarantine grounds. For decades, disease found its way into the surrounding villages and developments near the quarantine. Every spring, Staten Islanders would become infected with mysterious illnesses. In 1846, another yellow fever epidemic hit the region with incredible force. 
Across the Narrows in Long Island, the unfortunately named village of Yellow Hook was hit with yellow fever so hard that locals later had to change the village's name to Bay Ridge. But that epidemic hit the area around Staten Island as well. According to Dr. John Sterling, who served as an assistant physician at the quarantine grounds that year, quote, I have had an opportunity for becoming conversant with yellow fever when this disease prevailed at Staten Island to an alarming extent. It appeared first among the boatmen and almost simultaneously several persons whose business exposed them at quarantine were affected. The number of sick believed to be of yellow fever beyond the walls of the hospital was 150, of which a number 30 died. Yet locals were not only afraid for their health, they were angered at the depressed land values and lack of opportunity for any area surrounding the quarantine ground. Said one resident in 1849, quote, I have thought the existence of the quarantine very injurious to the rise and sale of property. The existence of the quarantine has created a prejudice against the whole island. Its presence was damaging Staten Island's financial livelihood. A special committee for the safety of Staten Island ran a lengthy treatise in an 1847 edition of the New York Daily Herald. Quote, there is one thing, fellow citizens of Staten Island, which more particularly concerns you. It is the great injury resulting to the island from the fear of danger in consequence of the quarantine. This materially interferes with the business of the island, and the sufferers are chiefly those who gain a livelihood by keeping public houses and places of amusements along the shore of Staten Island the retailers of many articles of merchandise, the owners and drivers of public carriages, and other persons who cannot afford the loss of a season. This, however, in comparison with health, is of minor importance. By the late 1840s, even some New Yorkers wanted it moved. From the New York Evening Post, quote, we may safely assert that the quarantine at Staten Island at present amounts to nothing. The island is too populous, and the ways of leaving it are too numerous to permit the perfect isolation of the infected. It is in the interest of New York that the quarantine establishment should be removed to a more distant point. And I should add a final reason for Staten Island's distaste for the quarantine hospital. The arrival of poor immigrants to this relatively calm rural community. A fear shared, of course, by even New Yorkers, but exacerbated here on Staten Island by the lingering specter of disease. Now, after that 1848 yellow fever outbreak I mentioned earlier, residents finally got the state government to pay attention, petitioning for the quarantine station to be moved elsewhere. The following year, the state passed a resolution authorizing the quarantine hospital be moved to a narrow band of land separating the bay from the Atlantic Ocean, Sandy Hook, famous today for its beautiful colonial-era lighthouse, the oldest operating lighthouse in the United States, incidentally. However, Sandy Hook was in New Jersey, not New York, and New Jersey didn't really care to take on this responsibility. New York's powerful shipping concerns also had no interest in moving the quarantine to a more difficult location. People were making money here, handsomely in fact, in this present system. According to the author Robert Ernst, 
The Marine Hospital was supported by a head tax levied on passengers and crews of seagoing vessels entering the port, varying until 1845 when cabin passengers paid $2 each and steerage travelers 50 cents. Although money was originally intended for hospitalization, large sums were diverted to other charities by special acts of the legislature. And so, nothing was done. And in fact, it looked like nothing could be done. Reading again from the New York Academy of Medicine report, quote, Through the subterranean hostility of interested parties, no definite action was ever taken. The expressed will of the people was defeated, and the law remained a dead letter on the statute books up to the events of 1858. And so this war between the state and Staten Island had reached a breaking point. The residents of the surrounding areas decided to take matters into their own hands. On the afternoon of September 1st, 1858, hundreds gathered in an outdoor meeting declaring the following resolutions. Resolved that the whole quarantine establishment located as it is in the midst of a dense population has become a pest and a nuisance of the most odious character, bringing death and desolation to the very doors of the people. Resolved that it is a nuisance too intolerable to be borne by the citizens of these towns any longer. Resolved that this board recommend the citizens of this county to protect themselves by abating this abominable nuisance without delay. These resolutions were posted throughout the island and then fixed to an outside wall in front of the quarantine. 48 hours later, the quarantine grounds would be completely destroyed by the residents of Staten Island. The end of the quarantine after this. On April 19, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly. But there is so much more to the story than what you might remember. Take a deeper look into this moment of history with the podcast Homegrown OKC, hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. The Homegrown OKC podcast is about better understanding the political environment in our country today. In particular, I found fascinating all the original archival footage used in the show, sounds which brought me back to that time, but with a richer understanding of events. These episodes were thrilling to listen to. That's Homegrown OKC. To listen, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC. Is America's primary system working? Is the Electoral College still the best process for electing a president? Could a third-party candidate ever be successful? In a new season of You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen gather the country's top experts to explore these issues and more as we approach the 2024 presidential election. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available now wherever you get your podcasts.
Planning an international trip and want to learn the language of your destination? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today resolved that this board recommend the citizens of this county to protect themselves by abating this abominable nuisance without delay this resolution was affixed to the wall of the quarantine hospital and at 9 p.m on that day this would be the exact spot where the destruction of the hospital would begin Men bombarded through the western wall, breaking onto the grounds and setting fire first to a wooden typhus shanty, then plunged forward to attack their next target, St. Nicholas Hospital, filled with first-class passengers being quarantined. Straw mattresses were shoved into entrances and set ablaze. A nurse soon rang an alarm, and so began the confusion and madness of the evening as frantic doctors and stevedores ran madly around, unable to discern who was there to fight the fire and who was there to provoke it. The harbor police were soon on sight, but were hindered from help as the angry mob heaped rocks upon their heads. Or at least that was the testimony. Many believed some members of the harbor police were intimately involved in the plot. While hospital employees worked bravely to rescue the patients, others freed the horses and the pigs, all the while being attacked by armed men in this frenzied mob. One man was shot in the back and later died, although most reports seem to indicate that this was the result of a personal vendetta that just happened to play out within this chaotic moment. An elderly patient also died that evening, although whether of trauma or of the toll of his disease, it was unclear. Thanks to the bravery of the stevedores, all the sick patients in the shanties were rescued and placed upon the lawn, while many more, along with the medical staff, worked to put out the blaze. Yet they could not rely on the volunteer fire company, most of whom had actually been responsible or at very least supportive of the blaze. When the fire engine was at last brought into the quarantine grounds, the water failed to flow. Firemen claimed that the hoses had been cut. The man perhaps at most danger here was Dr. Richard H. Thompson, who had for many years previously rebuffed the demands of local residents. To quote from Dr. Stevenson's history of the fire that I mentioned earlier, quote, the life of Dr. Thompson was potentially at stake, or so it was implied by Ray Tompkins, the grandson of Governor Daniel D. Tompkins and one of the leaders of the incendiaries. Tompkins was standing near the St. Nicholas Hospital when he heard the cue, Save Dr. Thompson's house, which was the mob's backward code for burn it. He then ran to Dr. Thompson's house to urge him to get off the grounds quickly, but found that the doctor and his family had already escaped. I was glad I did not meet him, Tompkins said the next day, adding menacingly, and I was glad a good many other people did not meet Dr. Thompson. 
Meanwhile, in New York that very evening and the evening after, people were reveling in the jubilant news of the Atlantic Cable. This was only one of the reasons why reaction to this first night's activity was so inadequate. A phalanx of Marines were sent the next day, but only to protect federal offices on the outskirts of the quarantine grounds. But the angry residents of Castleton were not through. A few structures remained standing after the first night, but not after the second. On September 2nd, after a rousing rally to, quote, celebrate the burning of the shanties in the hospitals, the mob headed again to the smoldering site to finish the job. A hospital for women and girls had been spared the night before, but not now. The remaining staff and their families were warned in advance, and many were now at the docks with their belongings, nervously watching as several new shafts of flame now shot into the night sky. Doctors rushed to evacuate their remaining patients, many of them terribly ill with contagious disease. From the New York Times, quote, The sick men and women in their nightclothes, weakened with illness and dreadfully excited, thronged about on the open grounds, crying aloud and beseeching, Will they burn us? The gaunt features and sunken eyes of those poor wretches were perfectly visible in the light of the burning dwelling behind them. Burning cinders fell in showers among them. In full view before them was the noble edifice in which they had been sheltered and nursed, now wrapped in flame from basement to dome. Once this final hospital was destroyed, the mob made due to find and destroy the hospital's last remaining vestige. And so too were destroyed the piers of the former quarantine grounds. The doctors, patients, and workers of the hospital spent the night huddled under a canvas enclosure and mustered up breakfast from those reserves that had not yet been destroyed. In a rather bittersweet illustration of Too Little Too Late, a steamboat filled with 100 New York police officers arrived that morning, setting up tents for the sick. The governor declared Staten Island in a state of insurrection, and a week later the state militia arrived, encamping for several months to monitor any possible signs of further unrest. A few men were arrested in connection to the attack, including Ray Tompkins, the grandson of the former vice president, and a name that might surprise you, Jacob Vanderbilt, the brother of Cornelius Vanderbilt. The Vanderbilt family traced its roots back to the early Dutch days of Staten Island. Young Cornelius had piloted passengers to and from New York on his sailed periauger back in the day. By 1858, Cornelius Vanderbilt had become the king of steamship travel. By this point, he even owned the Richmond Turnpike Company and control of the most profitable Staten Island ferry. On September 4th, 1858, Cornelius Vanderbilt bailed out his brother Jacob and several others accused of destroying the quarantine hospital. This connection to such violence did not mar Vanderbilt's great reputation. According to author T.J. Stiles, no aspersions were cast upon the Commodore. He was far too important a businessman for politicians to slight. 
The newspapers of the day rushed to various sides of this argument. Was this a case of righteous revolution in the service of safety and well-being against a ruthless state, or an unholy and malicious act of terror? Said a writer in the New York Times, quote, The disgraceful outrage which was committed at the quarantine grounds on Staten Island was the most diabolical and savage procedure that has ever been perpetrated in any community professing to be governed by Christian influences. Under the headline, The Rebellion of Staten Island, the New York Herald sympathized with the rioters. Quote, Experience shows that when the constituted authorities attempt to force upon the people a tyrannical and dangerous enactment, even an illegal check on the part of the sufferers will be excused by a large portion of the community. Certain it is that in all civilized countries, such checks have been used from time immemorial. England, France, and the United States have all witnessed examples of this point. Such proclamations of revolutionary violence were not out of left field. Just 10 years earlier, in 1848, revolutions had swept through Europe. And in New York, the following year, 1849, similar violence erupted in front of the Astor Place Opera House. Ray Tompkins and another man named John Thompson were eventually tried in court, seen as the ringleaders of the incendiaries. They were tried by a judge openly agreeable and sympathetic to their cause, so much so that the trial wandered from the clear criminal actions of the two men and instead focused on the clear and present danger of the quarantine station upon the liberty and well-being of the people of Staten Island. The men claimed a form of self-protection in their actions, and the judge was convinced. He acquitted the two men. From the New York Times on November 12, 1858, quote, The judge looks upon the burning of the quarantine buildings as an act of self-defense for the protection of life and property. The act, he says, was a natural right arising from urgent necessity. Now, what I find so outlandish about this decision on the judge's part is his willingness to believe testimony that the doctors and the sick inmates were treated with a modicum of respect. As the judge said, quote, the inmates were all suffered to escape. The patients were carried to a place of safety and were treated with care. Yet the rioters were clearly armed. Their actions were not that of a well-organized group. To quote again from Dr. Stevenson, there was no plan for the evacuation of the patients and quarantine staff members were shot at and beaten and workers' homes were destroyed. These actions suggest a crowd that was more intolerant and cruel than freedom-loving and more vengeful than afraid. And then there was the sick, those confirmed people with illness who were in the hospital, now thrown into the open along the shore, mingling not only with the doctors, but now with rioters, police, and militia. Who can even say what even happened to these men and women after this story? Not to mention that with the loss of a dedicated quarantine ground, where would the newly infected go? The quarantine war was complete and the victors were the residents of Staten Island. Fortunately, the city had a temporary solution. 
a hospital ship named the Florence Nightingale, which was anchored nine miles offshore. From the New York Times in October of 1859, quote, The very successful experiment of the hospital ship Florence Nightingale during the past summer, imperfect though that experiment was in many details, has established the fact that a floating system is the proper solution of our quarantine difficulties. One essential point is the satisfaction that the new scheme has given to all parties in the late Staten Island War. But that did not solve the original issue here, which was to have a permanent quarantine at the Narrows themselves, before ships entered the bay. New York finally came up with a very novel solution, actually. Artificially made islands. From Harper's Weekly, September of 1879. Quote, The property at Tompkinsville, Staten Island, known as the Marine Hospital Grounds, was sold and the artificial islands in the lower bay were undertaken and afterwards completed. Swinburne Island in 1860 and Hoffman Island in 1873. A short distance between the Narrows is Hoffman Island, with three extensive brick buildings. Three quarters of a mile further down the bay is Swinburne Island, which encounters the stead roll of the Atlantic on the full force of the winds and storms. The row of long white hospital wards unmistakably indicates its character. New York would, of course, build many other quarantine facilities. On Blackwell's Island, for instance, and North and South Brother Island, in the East River, near the city's public burial place, Hart Island. But in all these cases, no facility was ever built anywhere near a residential area. With no unpleasant facilities to burden it, the prospects of northeastern Staten Island did, in fact, thrive. In the 1880s, a land developer named George Law bought up properties along the waterfront north of the old quarantine grounds along the waterfront. He agreed to sell the properties for the development of a consolidated ferry terminal on the stipulation that the neighborhood then be named after him. And voila, you have the neighborhood of St. George. The St. George Ferry Terminal opened in 1886. St. George would become the administrative center of Staten Island when its borough hall would be constructed in the year 1906. But the quarantine war would set the stage for animosities between Staten Island and the state of New York and Staten Island and the city of New York Animosities that simmer to this day. In 1948, New York created the Fresh Kills Landfill on the island's western end. Within a decade, it would grow to become the largest landfill in the world. It would take another revolution by residents to rid themselves of this particular pestilence. But this time, the revolution would take place at the ballot box. In 1993, residents overwhelmingly voted to secede from New York City and become a self-governing city. Forgotten borough steps towards divorce, proclaimed the Washington Post. But this maneuver was blocked by the New York State Assembly and by Governor Mario Cuomo. And tensions eased when New York City Mayor Rudy Giuliani eventually did close the Fresh Kills Landfill. 
Now, today at the landfill, you'll find the development of Fresh Kills Park. When it's completed, it will be three times the size of Central Park. Now, we talked about this a little bit in our sanitation history show from last year. Meanwhile, over on the site of the old quarantine grounds, well, it's a lot less dramatic, needless to say, than it once was, although you can find a nice little promenade, and there's one place that you really must visit next time you're over there when we're all back open, of course, and that is the National Lighthouse Museum. On our website, BoweryBoysHistory.com, I'll have several images of tension and trauma from the Staten Island quarantine war, uh, illustrations that were run in magazines, newspapers of the day. You can also follow the Barry Boys podcast on Facebook, Twitter, and on Instagram. A very big thank you to everyone who does support our show on Patreon.com. For a small donation, you're helping to keep the Barry Boys podcast up and running here during this very difficult time. We are grateful and humbled by your support. And in particular, I want to give a very special Barry Boys thank you, tip of the hat, to Cornelius W., N.V., Sally W., Bert A., Deborah W., Elise V.S., Kristen O., Lay G., Lily M., Mitch P., Vincent P., and Chip P. You heard Tom's big announcement at the start of the show here. It's extremely exciting news, but it has thrown our schedule naturally into disarray. So we are going to a, just a weekly schedule, which is still more than we what we used to do, but it's a little less than two a week. So just one show a week for the next several weeks as we get our bearings here. And next Friday will be our listeners challenge show. So thank you very much for listening. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. Can you remember a time when you thought someone you disagreed with might actually be right? In the new podcast, You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen posed that question to guests like Paul Ryan, Al Gore, and Judy Woodruff. Come for the stories. Stay for the substance and expert insights into some of the most challenging issues facing the country, including affordable housing, crime, and education. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts.